Uh, before Easter, we took a look at Matthew chapter 4, if you recall, from something of a bird's eye view. We talked about this idea of the kingdom of God, which is a concept that so permeated the teachings of Jesus, he talked about it more than any other single thing. Matthew, the author of this biography of Jesus of Nazareth, summarizes the entire central message of Jesus by saying that Jesus went from place to place proclaiming, quote, repent for the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God has come near. Then, drawing on all sorts of brilliant allusions to the Hebrew Scriptures, what you and I call the Old Testament, Matthew crafts this familiar depiction of what it looks like when God becomes king and when he has a kingdom. He calls out a people. He liberates those in bondage. Evil is confronted and dealt with and driven back. And these things are actually coming to pass in this first century peasant rabbi, Jesus of Nazareth. Then Matthew is going to collect Jesus' most famous and most important teachings so that you, the reader, will know and understand how Jesus' disciples live and function in God's kingdom. So this is what it looks like when God becomes king, and this is how you live into that reality. So Jesus will describe in great detail this beautiful notion of life fully realized in the kingdom of God, and he does so by presenting a series of authoritative commands, what we now call the Sermon on the Mount. It essentially acts as a manifesto for life as an apprentice of Jesus of Nazareth. I like to call it a handbook for modern rebellion because everything Jesus says defies logic and sensibility. It is so utterly unexpected and altogether counterintuitive that Jesus will go on to repeat and reiterate his teachings to live them out in practice uh, and to describe them with metaphors and parables and analogies just so we can get through our heads how counterintuitive it is and what it's like. And we're going to be wading into the strange and exciting waters of the Sermon on the Mount for the weeks ahead, and I'm more than a little excited. It's my favorite uh, uh, passage in all of the Gospels and all of um, the Bible itself, Matthew. Matthew 5, 6, and 7. I believe there's something here to convict and to challenge every one of us. And I think that these pages, arguably some of the most important in all of the scriptures, contain the secret of life to the fullest. So with that said, let's begin in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples, his followers came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Tonight, our job is to discover and to rediscover exactly how provocative an introduction this is. Sure, on the surface, it reads as a simple list of blessings. And that word blessed or blessed, depending on who's reading it, is uh, makarios in Greek. 
And the word's not unique to Matthew's gospel. It appears in numerous ancient Jewish writings and in pagan writings, actually. But the word itself defies a simple translation. We have no direct English equivalent for makarios. Most of your Bibles simply render the word blessed or blessed uh, in English, which, which isn't entirely incorrect, but it is problematically simplistic because the word makarios is not the word elsewhere employed to describe blessing from God or divine favor over your life. We have Hebrew and Greek words for those concepts, and this isn't one of them. Makarios actually, by literal definition, has nothing to do with God in and of itself. In fact, one more straightforward translation is simply happy. Um, of course, the trouble with that translation is that in English and from culture to culture, happy means wildly different things, right? Um, some translations render the word fortunate. Some even say something like throw a party, uh, of all things. The word itself is actually a salutation, a way to open conversation. Some scholars argue that the best English translation might be something like congratulations. Uh, the idea is not unlike our traditional salutation for new parents or for a friend who's graduated or got a new job or something like that. You see them and you go, oh, wow, congratulations. How fortunate, how happy for you, how blessed are you? You know, Makarios, a new baby, wow, a new job, that sort of thing. Uh, and it's with this particular term as an echoing refrain that Jesus opens his Sermon on the Mount, his most important collection of teachings, Makarios. And what immediately follows is a list, a list of eight types of people, none of them whom Jesus' particular audience, nor we, the audience of modern day, would expect on a list of Makarios, the poor in spirit or those who mourn, or the meek, or those who crave righteousness, and so on. Now, I realize many of us know this list well, but imagine hearing this for the first time. Hearing this guy come out of the gate with, congratulations, you who are poor, and thinking, man, who is this guy? I mean, what is he on about? These are all fortunate people, happy people, congratulations to the poor. And someone in the crowd, I was, <laughs> I was thinking about in context of Matthew's narrative, like leans over to a friend and goes, isn't this the guy who claims he was out in the wilderness for a month without food talking to the devil? You know, it seems, you don't think that's funny? I thought it was hilarious. There's a reason that Jesus opens his most important collection of teachings with this list. And it's easy to bypass if you're just used to hearing it a million different ways and a million different times. This list, not unlike the list of commands that precede it, are among the most important words spoken by Jesus of Nazareth. And listen to me, I believe personally that this list is among the most misread and misunderstood words of Jesus as well. So it's crucial that we get this right. Agree or disagree, it's crucial that we understand this. So at the risk of sounding like the contrarian that I often am, let's clear the air by discussing what this list is not. That's fun. The first and most basic is that this is not a list of virtues. This is perhaps the most pervasive misreading of this text. On a scholarly level, uh, nowadays, fewer and fewer take this position anymore that the blessed are a list of good character traits. The idea being that, oh, poor in spirit means those people that are dependent on God or those who mourn are mourning over their own sin or something like that. The problem is that Jesus doesn't say those things. Um, he, doesn't, he doesn't say, for example, blessed are the poor, meaning those who are dependent on God. He simply says the poor. 
And there are two words for poor in Greek. The first is uh, panes, meaning something like those with very little income but functional, you know, sort of humble lifestyle, not fancy, uh, employed, but with a meager income, living paycheck to paycheck. And Jesus doesn't use that word. He uses the word pokos, meaning abject poverty, uh, on the brink of starvation and squalor. And in Matthew's gospel in particular, he actually adds the words in spirit, meaning abject poverty and squalor of the spirit. Dallas Willard and Scott McKnight, a few other New Testament scholars, translate the term something like, blessed are the spiritual nobodies. Those who have nothing material to offer, nor anything spiritual. No impressive virtue, no list of church qualifications, no resume of leadership. And the point is not that material and spiritual poverty are in and of themselves good and virtuous things. If you know the scriptures, does God celebrate or mourn poverty and its effects on people? Mourn, right, it's bad, it's not virtuous, he doesn't like it. Similarly, Jesus makes no qualification for the genre of mourning in question when he simply states, blessed are those who mourn. He doesn't add, you know, over sin and stuff or something like that. Now, who among us uh, knows what it means to mourn or to grieve or to harbor sorrow and pain and duress? Who among you guys has seen death up close or had her breathe in your face, so to speak? Who has seen and known miscarriages or divorce or depression or shattered relationships or mistakes that have torn entire lives asunder? I don't believe that Jesus is describing these things as virtuous. In Jesus' list, meek doesn't mean humble or shy. In fact, scholars argue a better translation is oppressed or those who suffer injustice or those who are cowardice. Um, so pop quiz, Jesus on the subject of injustice. Is he a fan or not a fan? Not, not a fan. Thanks, man. You must go to Bible college or something like that. It's good. Uh, <laughs> it's okay. We know each other. Remember, our conversation over uh, Matthew 4, if you were here a couple weeks ago, Jesus' audience at the time were mostly peasant Jewish people constantly reminded of an ongoing exile. Their land, which was the land of their ancestors, had been invaded and stolen by the Roman Empire to whom they were forced to pay taxes, to whom they were forced into debt slavery. These are not good things. Jesus isn't arguing that they are good things. Of course, the next item on the list seems to complicate things a bit. Perhaps you're wondering, well, how is hungering and thirsting for righteousness not a good or virtuous thing? Well, there are at least two ways to understand this. One might be where many of our minds go, which is like those who hunger and thirst for more God, so to speak. And interestingly, Jesus doesn't say those who hunger and thirst for more God. He uses the word righteousness, which is a bit fuzzy for modern audiences. In, in ancient Jewish understanding, righteousness meant so much more than simply good behavior, or righteous, you know, virtuous behavior. Righteousness was about the restoring of relationships between humanity and humanity, people and people, yes. But it also was about the restoring of relationships between um, humans and other humans, humans in the animal kingdom, humans in creation itself, humans with God himself. Righteousness is about making things right, in other words. Now, if we understand the word as Matthew almost certainly intends it in context, then it logically follows that those who badly hunger and thirst for relationships... Uh, right relationships, restored relationships, are those who don't have them. A friend of mine suggests a comparable term for us might be, blessed are those who are a mess. Really, that's simple. 
It's that person in your family who's divorced three, four, five times, kids with each new spouse, they're drinking again, everyone has bent over backward for them. And to look into their prematurely aging eyes, you can see how badly they crave to simply get their lives together, and yet they just can't seem to do it. They're a mess. And they hunger and thirst for the rightness that they don't have that's absent from their lives, whether by their own design or circumstantially. What I'm getting is, is that, with all due respect, I wonder if some of us read this as a list of virtues or else force it to become one because we can't make sense of it otherwise. Now, to be perfectly fair, there are some virtuous implications on the list. That much is clear. In fact, in this list of eight items, one through four differ from five through eight. There are two categories. And the distinction is a bit more obvious in the original language. In Greek, each grouping has exactly 36 words, which is kind of cool. Matthew's really smart and into numbers, apparently. Um, And all four of the first grouping begin with the same Greek letter, setting them apart from the second grouping, in which the good and the bad becomes a bit more complicated when he gets to the second list. For example, Jesus goes on to mention peacemakers, which is a very difficult concept to sort of divorce from virtue. Is peacemaking a virtue? This is not a trick question, by the way. Yes, exactly. But remember Jesus' audience. Remember the expected hope of the Jewish people, or at least as it was commonly understood. They were awaiting what was thought to be a great military leader who would overthrow evil pagan Rome, restore Israel where this king would rule and reign forevermore, uh, this bloody, victorious um, battlefield restoring the kingdom of Israel. A peacemaker in this context is a traitor, meaning either way, Jesus' words are provocative and complex. And I do not believe personally, and and I'm not alone, in fact, I've just taken this from folks who are much smarter than me, I do not believe personally that this is simply a list of virtuous virtuous things uh, that are to be emulated. Which brings me to what's next on our list of things that this introduction is not. I don't think that it's a list of commands. When we understand the blessed are those as virtues, then it sort of logically follows that they become imperatives as well. That is, if mourning is, for example, according to Jesus, a virtue, well, then we as his disciples ought to go out and mourn. But if we concede that these are not necessarily items of virtue, there's simply no reason to go, you know, generate poverty or mourning or oppression or whatever it is so that you can be blessed. Now, next, this is not a list of timeless truths. Let's take one as, a, as an example. Do the meek, as a timeless truth principle, always inherit the earth? No, they do not. Uh, or do the rich and powerful more often than not inherit the earth? Is it the meek who most often inherit the earth, so to speak, or is it those willing to oppress and to exploit and to vandalize morality and goodness to profit at the expense of the meek? And forgive me if I step on a, a toe or two here, but, but historically, has America been operated by the meek or by the rich and the powerful, by the privileged and the educated or successful or well-connected or often sorted backdoor dealing men and women of the silver spoon, so to speak? The wealthy and the famous, the CEOs, the celebrities of social media, are they meek or are they ambitious and self-promoting desecrators of honesty and humility willing to climb up the backs of anyone and everyone like some savage selfie-taking Yertle the Turtle. You know, if you, you guys don't, not into Dr. Seuss? Anyone? It's great. It's based on Hitler. Check it out. 
Do the merciful, for example, always receive mercy? No. I mean, read about nonviolent martyrs uh, for the cause of Jesus down through church history, enduring to this very day. They do not. I think it's obvious enough that understanding these as timeless truth principles is, is more than a little problematic. So if this is not a list of virtues, and it's not a list of commands, and it's not a list of timeless truths, what is it? Well, it's a number of things. First, this is the gospel. And I'm sure that seems a bit confusing at first glance to some of us. Currently, there is some debate over how to best understand the concept that we call the gospel. For one camp, the gospel is, if you know like church or theological rhetoric, justification by grace through faith, not by works. That's the gospel. There's even a whole group uh, called the Gospel Coalition, and they're sort of in place to defend that view, among other things. But the growing pushback to this assertion is that it seems to be the case that neither Jesus nor the early church defined gospel this way, or at least not that simplistically. If you remember the last couple of weeks uh, uh, in our talks about the kingdom of God, Gospel, or a gospel, a euangelion in Greek, was the announcement of a new king and a new kingdom. When Matthew summarizes Jesus' teachings, does he say, justification by grace through faith, not by works? Or does he say something else? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. The early church understood the gospel so broadly that the entirety of all four biography of Jesus unfold under that title. The gospel according to Matthew. The gospel according to Luke. Which part is the gospel? There you go. That's the spirit. The whole thing. All of it. Everything that follows. The gospel according to Matthew. And then all of it. One scholar I read uh, this week argued that when he's asked to share the gospel or how do you share the gospel, he often replies, how long do you have? And then he begins with, in the beginning. And starts there and goes forward. Because the gospel of Jesus, the coming of a new king and a new kingdom, is the entire story of Jesus situated within the entire story of God and of Israel. Now, most of you have heard me teach more than once. Uh, know it's obvious which camp I fall into. But I think it's, it's worth noting that if we partner with the early church and accepting a, a broad understanding of gospel, we still get justification by grace through faith, not by works, but we get much more than that as well. This is why the introduction to Jesus' sermon is the gospel as well. God's kingdom is breaking into humanity and it's coming to the least likely of all people. Not to the rich, but to the poor. Not to the happy, but to the sad. Not to the powerful, but to the powerless. And they haven't done anything but show up. They're just sitting in front of him in a crowd. And listen, there's a bit of irony here as well. When you interpret this list as a sort of index of virtues, it becomes yet another means of earning blessing indirectly. The very thing advocates of this interpretation are often most fearful. Rather than good works, which is sort of this churchy term for currying God's favor by doing him favors, behaving well, things like that, the list becomes yet yet another means of summoning blessing by being something. Being poor in spirit, you get blessed. Be meek, you get blessed. Be powerless, you get blessed, and so on. And this is not the gospel of Jesus. The gospel of Jesus is not people who mourn get blessed so you'd better get to that mourning thing (laughs) you better get on some mourning if you want some of that blessing the gospel of Jesus is hey you you who are riddled with grief 
you who do not have it all together, you who have nothing to show for your life, no money, no spiritual resume to speak of, come. You are welcome in God's kingdom. There is a place for you here. Congratulations. How fortunate you are. How happy this is. How blessed you are. And note, Jesus begins his most important set of teachings with a list as a way of saying, yes, God's kingdom is breaking into reality and it's coming by way of the least expected. Welcome, come in, blessed are you who dot, dot, dot. And then what immediately follows is Jesus' manifesto for how to live in God's kingdom, his manifesto for life as an apprentice of Jesus, a handbook for modern rebellion. You, welcome, come in, blessed are you. Now here's how you live in God's kingdom. In that order, first, blessed, welcome, blessing on you. And second, a whole new way to be a human being. So first, this is the gospel, but there's more. There's another dimension that, not unlike so many of Jesus' teachings, can, for many of us, become a difficult truth to reckon with. In this list, Jesus evaluates our great shared idea of who in the world is blessed, and he subverts it. This list reveals, according to Jesus, who is actually blessed. And shockingly, it runs contrary to nearly every expectation of the first century Jewish imagination. So to elaborate, I want to read you an excerpt from the book of Shirach, which was an ancient Jewish text from around a century or two before the life of Jesus. Uh, Shirach is included in the Catholic Bible. We'll use it here as a sort of example of prevalent Jewish thinking around the time that Jesus delivered his now famous list of blessings. I can think of nine whom, whom I would call blessed. It's like a short, a short list, but longer than Jesus. And a tenth, my tongue proclaims, a man who can rejoice in his children, a man who lives to see the downfall of his foes. Happy the man who lives with a sensible wife and the one who does not plow with ox and ass together. It's a bad thing, apparently. Happy is the one who does not sin with the tongue and the one who has not served an inferior Happy is the one who finds a friend and the one who speaks to attentive listeners. How great is the one who finds wisdom, but none is superior to the one who fears Yahweh. Fear of the Lord surpasses everything. To whom can we compare the one who has it? So according to popular thinking that was well represented amongst Jesus' audience, you were blessed if your family was well-behaved and promotable. Your enemies and or your competitor, competitors have been brought to ruin. Your business excels with you at the stern. Eloquence is your notoriety, social standing, the center of attention at the party. You sit at the top mo topmost rung of any social hierarchy. You serve no one, least of all an inferior, please. You enjoy power and authority. You are sought out for wisdom and advice. And on top of all that, you fear Yahweh. Your spiritual credentials are astounding. I don't think we have to revisit Jesus' list in detail to experience the stark, shocking dichotomy between this list and Jesus' list. And that's what I want for us to get our minds around this evening. I want us to rediscover just how provocative, how subversive this Sermon on the Mount really is from the beginning on. The list baffled its first century audience, it stands to reason, and it continues to confound the sensibilities of its readers more than 2,000 years later, especially here in America, a relatively young nation founded on the premise that human beings are entitled to life and to liberty and the pursuit of happiness. And the trouble therein is that there's an ongoing 
philosophical drift in the Western world in terms of how we define and understand the concept uh, lazily shorthanded as happiness, whatever the heck that means. Now, it's widely accepted via social science that a, a, a large percentage, some would argue 50% or more of your happiness uh, is a result of your particular genetic makeup, meaning, yes, some people are naturally more happy than others, right down uh, to their DNA. Like, how often does Katie Van Damlen not smile? How often have you seen her scowling? It seems to be like something in her wiring makes her smile all the time. And thank God for that. Thank God for her. Um, I am personally, I know it's going to uh, make people... Uh, set against me right away, but here it goes. I, I'm often uh, skeptical or sometimes downright resistant to personality tests personally, but, uh, and much to my wife's chagrin, she can't stand it. But just recently, uh, a mentor friend of mine, a, a PhD psychologist, disciple of Jesus guy, really wise older dude, was encouraging me to uh, consider the implications of my Enneagram number, which is this Christian, who's that excited about the Enneagram immediately? You? Okay, big fan of the Enneagram. Wow, okay. What's that? Oh, okay, wow. Yeah, here we go. He's in a box, everybody's in a box. Um, <laughs> he was in, what's the seven again? Yeah, that makes, actually makes perfect sense. <laughs> I guess in your case, it's dead on. But for everyone else, I'm really skeptical. Um <laughs> Anyway, uh, yeah, if you don't know what that thing is, it's this Christian model of the human psyche. It's this old uh, thing. People are really into it. Now, according to this thing, uh, I'm a, a number four, whatever that means. So uh, apparently this gentleman was telling me that understanding this could be helpful um, to in just in general and especially in the way that Abby and I relate to each other. Um, and he, war he warned me, well, you know, it's going to be massively helpful for you to know that you are a four, uh, it's just that it's, all, it's the most painful of all the personality types. And I was like, well, then I don't want it. I'll take a different one. <laughs> Give me a, I'll take seven. I'm the entertainer. Everyone's laughing. It's working out great. Um, the point is that uh, happiness comes to us all differently and often by genetics or by wiring, if you like that term better, or personality, some of us are wired with a happier disposition than others. Happiness is also completely contingent on comparison and contrast. Uh, as long as you keep your head just above the status quo, you can maintain some sense of happiness, loosely defined. Once upon a time, uh, Abby and I lived on a total budget of $500 a month, including that included rent, groceries, utilities, bills, the whole thing. And we did this by buying nothing, ever. Um, we never ate out, ever. You know, we had like meager groceries, and we were blissfully happy. I never thought anything about what we did or didn't have. I was like, this is incredible. We live in our own place, you know. Um, years later, we both had different jobs. We lived in a different city on the other side of the country here, uh, different social structure, different friends, different responsibilities, and we had more of everything, including money, and were somehow, for the first time ever, aware of what we didn't have. The starving, displaced Sudanese child just wants food to stave off starvation and a roof for shelter to beat the weather and the elements. One rung up, food and shelter are a given, but what about indoor plumbing, you know, to fight back bacterial infection, disease, diarrhea? What about clothes? That would be nice. Um, one rung up from that, food, shelter, plumbing, clothes, all spoken for, but what about two oxen instead of one oxen so that the village can actually thrive and make ends meet? 
um, climbed the ladder all the way up to the modern Western world in which food, shelter, plumbing, clothes, transportation, entertainment, and excess are all boringly normative. So what about more? <laughs> what about what that guy has? What about what this girl posts online? Why don't I have that? If I just had that, I could be happy. If I just had a little more, I could be where I want to be. And the long and short of it is that a modern Western understanding of happiness is contingent on circumstances almost entirely beyond your control. Feeling good about yourself and about your life based on variables you cannot contrive. Embittering ourselves with work we don't believe in only to buy things we don't need to reach a little farther for happiness that we can't grasp. Because, spoiler alert, most of us are not as special as we were led to believe. We aren't changing the world we were promised we would, and ultimately, we're going to die. Education won't change that, nor will travel, nor will more followers, or a bigger platform, or a better wardrobe, or more influence, or even a spouse, or children, or whatever it might be. And many of you have found yourselves excluded from the list of the world's blessings already by living this out in practice. And in steps Jesus to ask, are you sad? Are you poor? Are you oppressed? Have you reached for all those things only to come back empty-handed? Well, congratulations. I have blessing for you. Come with me. And Jesus sidles up past the wealthy and the elite and the powerful and those with tens of thousands of followers and influence and prestige and says, hey, you, you, I have good news. And such a person, uh, it stands to reason, says, well, who, me, are you talking to me or this person right here? Because I can't even pay my bills. I've alienated my friends. Believe me, I've made a mess of my life. I'm on marriage number three, whatever it might be. And Jesus says, yes, you, I have good news for you, for you first even. Now listen, the only way that we can fathom Jesus' list is by understanding Jesus' concept of the kingdom of God. And remember, the reality of God's kingdom is in one sense now, and in another sense, not yet. In theology, we call it inaugurated eschatology. Jesus inaugurated a kingdom, and we can and we do see glimpses of it revealed in the here and now, but it will not be fully realized until the renewal of all things and the resurrection of the dead. This is actually reflected in Jesus' list of those who are blessed. Both the first and the last entries are blessed in the present tense. Theirs is the kingdom of God, but the middle six blessings are all future tense. They will be comforted. They will inherit the earth. They will be filled. They will be shown mercy and on down the list. You and I inhabit a unique, ongoing transition in human history after the resurrection of Jesus and yet before the renewal of all things. So the tomb is empty and therefore we see miracles, we see healing, we see families restored, um, relationships reconciled, we see evil being driven back all the time. And yet... We wait to see the return of Jesus so we continue to experience despair and suffering and war and famine on a global level, child abuse, and on and on the list goes. And because of this, the ultimate fruition of this list is not faithfully and consistently true in the world we know. The meek do not always inherit the earth. Those who mourn are not always comforted. But this list has begun to come true even now and soon it will be altogether true forever. Now, 
Before we end tonight, I want to address uh, a couple of elephants in the room. One, which is probably directed to the vast majority of you guys, which is what if you're not on Jesus' list? What if you don't recognize yourself in any of Jesus' eight categories of who is actually blessed? To begin with, that's okay. Remember, these aren't virtues for you to run out the door and to emulate. You don't have to go out and try to mourn tonight so that you can get a blessing. Chances are, many of you are actually quite rich, especially by global standards. Uh, Maybe you don't think of yourself as such. Perhaps you're not poor in spirit, or you're not mourning, or you're not a spiritual zero. You actually have an impressive list of leadership qualifications, whatever it might be. And that's okay. In fact, many of it's really good, actually. The idea is not for you to feel overlooked, or guilty, or shut out of God's kingdom because you're not. But I would say this. As disciples of Jesus, you are privileged. You are the exception to the worldwide rule. And I use that word not to evoke guilt, but a sense of responsibility as an apprentice of Jesus. As Jesus' disciples, you are personally burdened with the responsibility of utilizing your privilege as one means of easing the pain and longing of those who do not have it, whether that's financially or skill set wise or being a listening ear, whatever it is that you have that someone else does not have. As Jesus' disciples, you are burdened with that responsibility. It really should impress upon each one of us. Because those without are precious to God, and we need, those with need to understand that. For you and I who are privileged, and I would absolutely put myself on the list of those who are privileged, there's something beautiful for us to know about who God is. The gospel comes by way of so-called worthless people. Shepherds, for example, uh, were at the bottom of first century Israel's social ladder. They were ostracized, poor driven from the centers of power, even banned from certain religious customs in the temple. And in the story of Christmas, one of my all-time favorites, uh, God himself is incarnated, incarnated as a human being. It's a big deal. Angels arrive in the physical realm to proclaim the news that the Messiah has come to rescue his people. This is it, the moment we've been all, all been waiting for. And they share this information first with shepherds. And they tell them to go tell everyone else. In a culture where children were to be seen and not heard, Jesus boldly states, taking kids up in his arm, making an exception for them, let them come to me, and says no one is going to get into God's kingdom unless they first make themselves like little children. In a culture where women were seen less as people and more as property, Jesus shares the good news with a woman at a well, something he shouldn't have even been socially doing at the time, and who then goes on to tell the rest of her village, including the men. A Samaritan woman at that, an ethnicity despised by Jesus' own apprentices, and they have to hear about the conversation secondhand after the woman. Listen to me, the Bible itself, this is incredible when you get this, the the Bible itself as a library of writings was written by the poor and the insignificant. Now, this does not mean that for most of us here who are neither poor nor oppressed, we have no place in God's kingdom, uh, we should be alienated and ostracized ourselves. That's not what it means at all. The doors have been flung wide open for everyone to enter in, and Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is a manifesto for living in God's kingdom intended for the weak and for the strong, for the powerful and for the powerless, the rich, the poor, everyone in between. But in God's beautifully upside-down economy, it's the poor, the insignificant, the so-called worthless person who arrives before the rich and powerful to say, I have good news for you. 
The good news comes to those least expected first, and it carries on to the ends of the earth. Now, if you are on this list, what does that mean? If you are poor in spirit, you have nothing to offer, no impressive resume, no leadership credentials, no Instagram followers, no influence, your life is a mess, perhaps of your own design, you sit with suffering and grief daily, you just can't get out of the slump that you're in. The great American narrative is that yours is a life without blessing. Poor thing, we would say, of you folks. Because America defines blessing a very particular way and not at, not at all unlike a very common first century Jewish understanding of blessing, which is you are blessed when things are going well. That's how we traditionally use the phrase, oh man, I'm just so blessed because things are going really well for me. I have stuff, so I'm blessed. I have respect from people. I'm blessed. I have money. I have power. I have influence. I have comfort. How blessed am I? And what's worse, the church often agrees with this narrative in full, whether it's about the church itself or about the people in it. You know, more members is, wow, we're so blessed right now. More money, a bigger fountain, more lights, a playground, a coffee bar. Wow, how blessed. We're just so blessed right now. And if you move your, your scrolling index finger along the sad, empty, soulless litany of desperation that is social media, you will see hundreds of thousands of clamoring bodies who define blessing as, my life is awesome, my family is awesome, things are going well, look at all this nice, neat, shiny crap I have, so blessed. I'm just so blessed. And please, understand me, I know I sound like cynical old man Porter already, but I'm not saying this to depress you or to step on your toes, toes. What I want is for us to understand how radically inverted Jesus' list of blessing truly is. Because when your life is not a list of unfolding amazement with a beautiful family and a hip home decorated with all sorts of brand name garbage, and when that isn't your life, then the narrative of America and often the church is, is sadly, well, you just aren't blessed. If you were, things would look quite differently for you. And in steps Jesus to disagree completely. And it seems to me that what Jesus is getting at here is not that things will get better eventually, better in terms of America better. Like, you're blessed meaning, hey, wait, wait a second, and then you'll have stuff, and then you'll have an impressive resume. And I don't think that um, he's saying, well, count your blessings because it's like this first season. You still got some stuff. Be grateful for what you have. I think Jesus is saying there is blessing for you right now where you are just as things are. And here's one way to think of it. The poor in the, in the gospel, the, the biographies of Jesus, they come to Jesus for an encounter and they get one. Do they leave no longer poor? No, they, they go away still having no money. They didn't get it from Jesus. That guy has to ask other people for coins just to use a metaphor. Um, but are they forever changed? Yes, many of them are radically changed from then on. Blessed are the poor then. The oppressed come to Jesus. First century Israel, Jewish people, and they, many of them have their lives turned upside down. They encounter Jesus and are never the same ever again. Are they still oppressed? Yeah, absolutely. They live under the cruelty of the Roman Empire that continued on after Jesus as it continued to rule and reign over Israel. But blessed are the oppressed for having met with Jesus. Whatever face your pain wears, there is blessing for you today in Jesus. You are blessed. And one day on the coming horizon, everything will be as God intended and pain itself will be forever undone. 
So to end tonight in the spirit of recapturing the subversive nature of uh, what we often call the Beatitudes, Jesus' list of who's actually blessed, I've uh, written a bit of a paraphrase of the Beatitudes in such a way that I hope captures the often overlooked subversive spirit originally built into the text. It's not a new translation. This is not, you know, equal with the Bible or anything like that. It's just my personal creative interpretation. I think that it might sound something like this. God is now available to humanity. You have access to the creative and personal power behind the construction of the universe. The God of the universe wants to know you. You, the spiritually bankrupt, the religiously deprived, and the theologically uneducated, the spiritual zeros. You who wear no badge of churchy esteem with no wealth or pious experience or any sacred clout to speak of, Good news for those who have never cracked a Bible, never warmed a church pew, for those who don't know how to pray out loud or to speak the secret language of the spiritual veteran, God says, welcome. The king is personally inviting you into the kingdom. To those at the end of their proverbial rope, God chooses you, the wife abandoned by her husband, the widower weeping into the empty space where his wife once slept, God is calling You parents who have buried your children and you children who have buried your parents, God sees you. To each and every one of you laid waste by life's merciless bulldozer of grief, God says, I have comfort for you. For each and every timid, waffling, nervous wreck of reluctance and indecision, God is inviting you to the front of the line. For most of your life, your voice has been unheard as words freeze in your throat. You seem to shrink against the turbulent backdrop of humanity, neglected, overlooked, disregarded. God holds you in the highest esteem. Your smallness is big to God. Though you have become convinced of your insignificance, God is poised to hand over the keys to his kingdom. I have hope for the horribly wronged, for those who have been beaten by the seemingly impenetrable wall of the world's injustice and who have beat it with defiant fists. God says this, I am coming to make things right. For you, life has become criminally unfair where thieves and murderers oppress the vulnerable and destroy the weak, where the powerful prey on the powerless. Know this, the very flame of their evil will be snuffed out once and for all as injustice itself crumbles before the relentless love of God. Let those whose compassion has been called weakness celebrate. God sees all of your kindness that the world has deemed foolish. Though you have been called a doormat, an enabler, naive, God has set you up as an example for the selfish and the stingy. You who know all too well what it means to give until it hurts. You've emptied your wallets, your emotional strength, your psychological depth to care for the undeserving. Well, God is going to do the same for you. God is going to do even more. You poor, poor perfectionists. How you drive the world insane, not least among which yourself, as everything around you fails to measure up. You for whom the food never tastes right, the temperature never accommodates, your surroundings never satisfy. The world simply fails to perform and you sit chief among its great failures. Ever the disappointment, a frowning visage of malcontent in every reflective surface. You, my friend, are going to see God. For you, the not good enough will become the better than you could have ever imagined. Those frustrating intermediaries who advocate peace in the face of a world ravenous for world, God relates to you. 
You double-minded men and women who insist on seeing both sides, on reaching for empathy rather than swift justice, how you vex the volatile, standing arms outstretched in between squabble after squabble. No one trusts you who sympathize with the ungrateful and the wicked. The God who brings good to those in the wrong sees you. I have a comforting word for every person who has been cut down because of his or her concern for what is good. You who reject the world's guns, the world's wars, the violence of word and fist, you who favor peace in a world inflamed for power and protection, one day the world will see that you are like God himself. You who refuse to depart from what you know to be right, even in the face of overwhelming opposition. You've been called names, refused work, fired from your job, locked up in prison, rejected, dejected, dismissed, denounced. God is making available to you a reality in which no ultimate harm can find you. You will reign in God's kingdom. And it doesn't end there. On and on the invitation unfolds before us like a scroll without end. Watch it unfurl as it speed past the undesirable, the inconvenient, and written across this scroll again and again, a a banner utterly offensive to the privileged and the well-off. I have good news for worthless people. At God's party, the toothless vagrant babbling and stinking of urine goes dancing to the seat of honor as the prim and prestigious are kindly asked to step aside. The uneducated, the dropouts, the welfare recipients, the trailer trash are all awarded crowns and asked to sit with God himself. Every one of you billions scraping through this unforgiving life each day with little more than pennies in your shaking, hungry hands, God is going to stand you proudly before the wealthy and the fat. God is going to give you the future. Each and every sallow weakling dying on your sterile hospital beds, wax skin tightly stretched over quivering ribs as cancer devours your body, as AIDS parades through your blood, God is going to come close to you. God is going to wrap his arms around you. You will feel God's touch with a profound intimacy unknown to the healthy and the robust. Congratulations. God has a plan to set the worlds to right. To do so, he would prefer to use the illegal immigrant, to use the refugee. God would like to enlist the displaced family crowded into their studio apartment, desperate for work, for hope, for a future, while God himself will give them all three. God is coming to rescue the disabled and the disfigured, those unable to walk or speak or see or think. They are the apples of God's eye. Today, they have become royalty. Oh, you foster kids and abused children, unloved and passed around and punished beneath the fists of the evil and unkind, you have become children of the great king. Yes, God has cleared his schedule to meet with you, the most precious affairs of the entire universe. God readily drops to the floor to open his arms before you. God will lift you up in his embrace. He will kiss your face and celebrate you before all the world. Head over heels, he loves you. Yes, you, the lonely, the awkward, the unbearable, the ugly, the too fat, the too thin, the unimpressive failures, the weirdos, the bully, the too proud, the too scared, the single moms, the divorcees, the corrupt and twisted out of shape, the hopelessly overwhelmed and the overwhelmingly hopeless, I have good news for you. With that in mind, with the radically upside-down economy of God in our mind as the great hope of the universe and the doors swung wide open to let all of us in on Jesus' list, not on Jesus' list, knowing how God favors the weak and the vulnerable and how he yet welcomes 
the powerful, and the rich. Will you guys stand with me as we pray and invite the Spirit to come and to speak over us?